This is Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life, so any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermillion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. Hello, I'm James Vermillion, and this episode of Philosophy features entrepreneur and philosopher Jonathan B. Jonathan is an expert on René Girard, who seems to be having a moment some eight years after his death, perhaps due to Peter Thiel's crediting Girard with influencing his thinking. Jonathan, along with David Perel, recently released an eight-part lecture series on Girard, which is thought-provoking, intense, and very educational. I suspect many of you will watch or listen to it after hearing this discussion. Get ready to learn. Hello, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to be discussing French philosopher René Girard. If you're listening and you haven't heard of Girard, don't worry, he's quite obscure. I actually became aware of Girard's mimetic theory thanks to you, Jonathan, and David Perel, and the lecture series you created on Girard's ideas, which is excellent, by the way. When thinking about the intersection of meaning and money, I think Girard provides an interesting framework on how we can think about the decisions that we make and why we make decisions, especially with money, that are seemingly irrational and against our best interests. But before we jump into Gerard's ideas, why don't you provide a bit of background on how you landed on Gerard as a person of interest and someone you wanted to study more deeply? Yeah, and, and I think this sort of personal background is going to lead us quite naturally to your, your first question about the uh, actually philosophy of money and why people do things that are so seemingly against their own self-interest. So uh, I was born between China and Canada. I focused mostly on, on, on mathematics and uh, then I had an interest in computer science, which I uh, initially began a degree at Columbia for. I, I dropped out my freshman year to run a company that I co-founded uh, at my sort of senior high school, and it ended up crashing and burning, which actually brought me to, to Girard. Now, that might sound like a ridiculous story of you know failing a company which led one to, to obscure French philosophy. Um, but the reason that that happened is the failure was such an internal failure. You know, it wasn't like we had an authentic, true desire and belief and we were trying everything that we could in the company and then it failed, right? And the reasonable response there would be just to do another company. But it was something more like I wanted to be an entrepreneur more, th- more than actually the practice of, of building a company. And so what ended up being was just maintaining this shell of being an entrepreneur. And so as a result, you aren't fully aligned. And w- without that alignment, even with that alignment, it's very hard to, 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 it's a hard thing to do. And, and success is not guaranteed, but uh, failure is almost guaranteed when you don't have that alignment. And so it was because that failure was so internal, right? It was a, uh, a bundling up, a spaghetti, if you will, of my own desires um, that I, I, I needed to turn to an equally introspective solution to try to resolve that. And that is a great example of uh, doing something uh, seemingly against you know, one's own interest. I had no desire to, to run a company at the stage, and yet I still uh, did that and, and spent most of my days doing that. Yeah, I think all of us can relate to that. I know we've, I've certainly done things that I didn't really want to do, but I did them because it was expected of me or because I wanted to look like I was, I was doing those, those types of things, so I did them anyways. And in, in your lecture series with David Perel, uh, there was a part that really grabbed me in lecture one that I really think summarizes mimetic theory uh, quite well. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this little Please, little snippet yeah. and maybe expand on it a little bit if you want. But I really thought it, it does an excellent job. You said, for Gerard, mimesis isn't everything, but everything to some degree is mimetic. The rush of adrenaline that infects you in a roaring and lively sporting stadium, the tribalism of politics, the madness of cults, and how they sustain each other's delusions the passing on of accents, even as animal activity of replenishing ourselves, drinking water, we may still call to mind, however subtly, our favorite athletes and how they drink Gatorade. 
That's the purpose of those commercials, to get that in your head. This is how broad and all-pervasive mimesis operates. Humanity for Gerard would be completely unrecognizable without it. Yeah, there, there's a lot to, to go into here, but may, maybe one way to frame our conversation, since what you hope to get for your listeners uh, is something, uh, insights about money. Maybe we can sort of frame our conversations into two angles, two Girardian angles to attack that. One is to talk about the psychology, uh, Girard's psychology, and what insights that gives us, and the other is to talk about Girard, Girard's anthropology, uh, and, 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 you know, what the a practice of money or capitalism is really descended upon. And I think both of them are going to give us quite interesting insights. So on the psychological front, that's exactly right. And maybe to give those who aren't that familiar with Gerard's theory a brief overview, Gerard essentially thinks that there's two species of, of desire, right? One is physical desire, and that's aimed at utility or experience. And one is metaphysical desire, and that's aimed at identity or being. And I think, you know, uh, one clear example here is if I have sex for someone out of physical desire, then it would be uh, the pleasure in the moment or, you know, cuddling and feeling of intimacy in the moment. Uh, but if I did it out of metaphysical desire, it would be what having sex with a certain type of person really says about me. And this is a real psychology, right? This is the psychology of, of the Don Juan or the coquette or the socialite. Right. And as uh, that example goes to show, one activity, even when performed by the same person but across different times, can be motivated drastically differently by mm. different desires. Uh, I got into Gerard mostly out of uh, metaphysical desire. Another large reason that I actually went to Gerard instead of you know, someone else like the Stoics uh, was because of, because of Peter Thiel and the prestige he lent to that. Um, but but so that was mostly metaphysical desire to begin with. Uh, yet I stayed with Gerard, uh, mostly because I, I found real value uh, and, and utility yeah. uh, in, in his theory and enjoyed sort of uh, wrestling him to the ground, as you correctly noted, one has to do in trying to make sense of him. But other examples are you know, doing a job because, because you like it or doing a job because it's uh, the job that you're perhaps socially expected to do, right? And so that this sort of theory goes to explain why people seemingly do things so against their self-interest. And I think, you know, when we look back in history, we tend to puzzle at how, I don't want to use stupid, that almost seems so simple a term, but, you know, how, how stupid people have been in, in, in the past, right? Think about, you know, the early Christian monastics who, who castrated themselves. It was only until the Nicene Creed. The first thing they agreed upon right. in the Nicene Creed was, don't cut your dick off. That yeah, was yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> should go and, without uh, saying, we would think. Exactly. But. Uh and, uh, you know, there's these stories of these aristocrats in not too far from us, 18th, 19th century, who would refuse certain tactics in war that would almost certainly grant them immediate victory because, uh, because it was considered ignoble, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if we were to consider humans as these rational, utility-maximizing creatures, as economics does, uh, then, then we would say this is completely, uh, completely, you know, uh, I, I can't make sense of it. Uh, and, and even today, I feel like, uh, people in the future might puzzle at our current elite and how seemingly the richer you get, the more you tend to work and often yeah. in very trivial uh, tasks that, that don't breed enjoyment. So there's a whole scope of human activity that can't really be made sense of. If you take a naive and simplistic view of us as homo economicus, right, as, uh, 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 you know, uh, as individuals who want utility and, and we use rationality or reason to get that utility, and there's a whole other part of the human psyche. And the way that I've tried to explain this is that Gerard is really rescuing. Uh, he's not the only one to do this. I think uh, Hegel, Rousseau, Smith, Hume have also done this. But he's one of the authors in modernity to rescue uh, a lost part of the soul, you know, if I'm being a bit dramatic. What, what I'm referring to is Plato had this notion of the tripartite soul. Uh, Plato's conception of man and his motivation, we can use reason and... Uh, Three parts of the soul. The first part is reason. There, you can use rationality to, to get contemplation, contemplative good philosophy. Then we have what we share with animals, right? That's appetite. We use our instincts to get food, shelter, hunger. Uh, and then there's the spirited part of the soul. And that's the part of the soul that makes us social creatures. And that's what desires thumos or, or glory. Uh, and, and I think that part of the soul has been completely wiped out from almost... Uh, at least the popular modern understandings of what man is, both via the Enlightenment, yeah. both via uh, Romanticism, as well as uh, through subjects like economics, who it, it, where it becomes very difficult if you if you had to account for something like this. And so maybe one way, you know, to frame the question you just posed as 
how people could seemingly act so against their own self-interest in finance is how can we think that people wouldn't do this in the first place? Uh, to me, that, that seems like the most, yeah, the more interesting question. Um, but yeah, I probably digress there. No, that, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation I had, um, I don't know, maybe like three or four months ago. I was, I was chatting with a friend and we were talking about this very topic on, on why people make these sometimes crazy, crazy seeming, uh, financial decisions. And, and his, uh, premise, if you will, was that, there's a lack of financial literacy that's it's 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 an ignorance of of the decisions or an ignorance that leads to poor decisions. And while I uh, believe me, I think there is certainly a lack of financial of course, literacy. Yeah. I'm not I'm not taking away from from that problem, but I I disagreed wholeheartedly about the right. problem. And I, you know, I think about health, Jonathan, like most of us know the basics. I'm not talking about to win fitness competitions, but like most of us know how to be healthy. We know generally right. what types of foods we should eat. We know we need to get a certain level of physical activity. We know that we need to get a certain amount of sleep every night. And yet the majority of us uh, don't do those things very well. And I think money is much the same way. People know they need to be saving for retirement. They know they shouldn't overextend themselves and go into debt. That's not generating some sort of, of income. We know these things. Most people know these things. And, and and yet here we are in a in a situation in which most people don't even have really a basic level of savings to help them get through some emergency. So so it, you know, kind of after the fact, I didn't really attribute my thinking to to Gerard or, or mimetic theory. But I think in hindsight, looking back, I think what I was really saying was it's it's not a lack of of knowledge. It's not a lack of knowing what what we should or shouldn't do. It's that there are these other external forces that I think mimesis can help explain that are driving us to do things that that maybe uh, aren't uh, the best serving as far as from a financial um, standpoint. Totally. I mean, a- another way I think uh, to put what, what you're saying here is that there's something more than rational self interest that's driving our economy. Right. And I think Gerard sees current capitalism and the economy as, as a whole as a continuation of warfare. Um, and, and I think this is quite a mm-hmm. interesting and perhaps unintuitive lens to, to view the economy. I think, uh, speaking very broadly here, perhaps the Marxists uh, viewed uh, the economy, even if not in its current state, but in its ideal state, as a continuation of the family. Right? And this is, this is why communism is the logical next step. Because, um, you know, to, to each according to his need, from each according to his ability, that is the logic of right. the, of the nuclear family. Um, but, and I, and I, and I think perhaps that's why they're so disappointed, uh, by, by, by the, the current capitalistic economy as, as we see today. However, if you, see, if you see the modern economy as an extension of warfare, then, then, then you, um, then suddenly it seems quite, quite darn attractive. And, and so the question is, well, the, the real question is, well, is, is an extension of warfare? And, you know, he, he gives a few arguments. I believe this is close to the exact quote. He says, it's little wonder that when warriors and heroes went out of style, the European aristocracy soon readily found themselves engaging in business. <laughs> and, and, and I think when you look at dominant actors or regular actors in capitalism today, they would have been the princes and, and heroes of yore who have amassed great armies and, and, and gone on to plunder or, or conquer. Um, and, and I think... Uh, you, you see this in founders and investors, and that is uh, the channel of, of those energies today. And in many ways, I think Silicon Valley is, the, is, is to America what Gaul was to, was to Rome. It's this sort of w- barren land where you can stake your own claim. Uh, it was positive sum, at least for the Roman Empire. Um, and, and it was where you could go from zero to hero, right? Go, go from absolutely nothing, take an immense risk, and, and then return with a huge pile of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gerard meant this to be a deep critique uh, of the economy, right? That it's still motivated, motivated by these selfish forces. Because another way, another thing that he's saying here is don't get fooled when the capitalists claim that they're trying to save the world or make the world a better place. They're just after glory. But it's also a deep praise of capital, right? What a miracle it is. What a, what a crazy miracle it is that we've managed to, I mean, to use a dramatic word, con these highly, uh, uh, competent, uh, people, uh, from instead of fighting zero-sum wars as, as they've done and, and earning glory that way, they're now, they now have to kowtow and make products and services <laughs> for each other, right? That but we can friends, buy cheaply. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. What a miracle, what a true miracle it is. Um, and you know, one, all of this, and I, I want to circle this digression back to, to your point here, is that 
when we start viewing the economy not as an expression of human needs, but as the domain of spirit. And, and again, it's not totally fair to view the economy in this way, right? But, but I'm saying uh, we sort of veer in, in the opposite direction right. too much. So right. if we were to view the economy as a domain of spirit, and again, spirit here means the part of the soul that desires the social goods of prestige and, and belonging and recognition, then I think a lot of these things suddenly make sense. Why the NFL uh, linebacker or, the, or you know, the, the new, newly minted sports star would sort of spend all his or her money on, on sort of flashy jewelry uh, and why, for example, in M&A transactions, uh, it's almost never the economics that, that sink a deal. It's always the dynamics between people. Mm-hmm. And why, for example, when people buy assets, uh, in these days, for example, angel investments in Silicon Valley are no longer about getting a return on money, right? It's almost about seeing, oh, hey, are, you know, are, are you in Palantir? I'm in Palantir. Are you in Palantir, right? It, it's kind of like it's become a, a status game in and of itself. Now, obviously, you know, for, for some, for a certain amount of assets, like, I don't know, infra- bridges in, in Brazil, uh, that's probably going to be less the case. But uh, yeah, I, I hope that, that uh, elaborates on what you were saying there. No, I, I think it does. And I, and I think you even said it, 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 in the first lecture there that, you know, part of your motivation for looking de- more deeply into Gerard was you were seeing and, and maybe you were even feeling uh, people spending money they didn't have to impress people they don't like on things they didn't want. So, you know, I think I think that's very true of all of us. I I know, you know, when I reflect on on myself, um, I I can just really recall lots of doing lots of things, uh, and even asking myself while I'm doing it, why am I doing this? And I and I really didn't have an explanation. Um, so what I like about Gerard and I, what I what I like about this theory of mimesis is it really takes a, a very simple observation, right? Like we see this in children. I mean, I've got a two-year-old daughter. She literally mimics everything I do. She says the same things I say. Right. She sings the same songs that I sing. She does the same movements that I make. Uh, we right. see it with our peers. And then th- there are these ideas that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think what that quote is really getting at is when you spend time with people, you start mimicking them, they're mimicking you, and you all start to become more similar. Um, right. So Gerard took this this simple observation that's everywhere around us and really built it out um, into a framework that can help us understand our own motivations, the motivations of others, and ultimately human behavior in general. So I, I think yeah. that's pretty pretty fascinating. One interesting way of, of uh, looking at Gerard's uh, theory is that he, he gives us an explanation for w- where normativity comes from. Normative, as opposed to the descriptive, is about human values, right? So, so it's, uh, you know, and, and, and the sort of traditional philosophical uh, dilemma is, you know, it's clear that, you know, the descriptive, my coat is black, uh, these are white, I am six feet two. Uh, these, are, these are all descriptive values that we can gain certainty in our own world. But what about normative values? What is the beautiful? What is the good? How should we treat others? What is justice and what is God? When we talk about those things, those aren't as easily, uh, they don't make themselves as readily available for the same type of observations we do for descriptive phenomena. And Gerard's point is that we actually gain one way, at least, that we gain normative certainty of things is through the norm of certainty of others, right? And this explains why there's, there's all these cultural fundaments, the belief in the Christian God for, for a great uh, deal of, of, of the West, at least, that are sort of these bedrocks that no one questions and has absolute faith in. And Gerard says that that faith actually isn't mostly an individual relationship, um, but it's a, it's a collective relationship. It, it's, it's, it's sort of mimicking the faith of others. And the way that this ties into uh, money is I find that when we, when we really dig, dig deep into what has value, like why do pieces of paper with you know, Abraham Lincoln's face on it have value? There's a, there's a lot of explanations, but when, when, you, when you boil to the basis, it, it's, at least for fiat currencies, it's that others believe that it has value. That's right. Yeah. Right. Obviously, you know, there, is, uh, there are reasons that people believe they have m- value, for example, like the U.S. military, um, but, but that is the core fundament. And this is a fact that is much more, uh, uh, it stands out a lot more when you look at ancient societies. There's these societies where that, that believe that these huge boulders, right, rolling these big stones, right, that's that's their form of currency. Um, or if you look at something like NFTs, which has almost no value to someone like me, 
but to a certain group, right? right. It's equivalent right. to sort of millions upon millions of dollars. And so fundamentally, what we consider as valuable, uh, you know, is also sort of governed by, by mimesis. And you can actually see this uh, by how different uh, cultures price assets uh, mm-hmm. or, or value assets differently, or Indians and gold, and the Chinese and, and real estate. There are these cultural proclivities and, and, and leanings that are sort of equally governed by mimesis. And the last thing I'll say is you made this point about how Gerard is a theorist who can help help you understand the parts of yourself that were previously seeming to be unrational. And I think that that's the perfect way to read Gerard, where the, the two parts of the soul that I think we're focused on, right, reason and appetite, right? That's why GDP is such an important metric, right? Mm-hmm. It's about how do we quantify appetite and cheap goods. Um, that... You can, you can model a human pretty well, economicus, if it's just about those two. But by introducing spirit, what, uh, Gerard is doing is that he's trying to create a logic of how we are illogical. Or to put it another way, he's right. giving us, um, he's shedding light and giving uh, a reason for our unreasonableness, right? Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it gives you a logic for you to understand humans as they are and not just as these uh, logical creatures. Yeah, when I look at at you know philosophy like this or, or or whatever you want to call these ideas, I really try to figure out how's this useful to me. Like, what can I do with this? And I and I think what I took away from Gerard, and maybe you view it a, a bit differently, is that this is really the diagnosis, right? Like Gerard is providing an explanation and saying, let you know, beware of this. And and I don't believe mimesis or or mimetic behavior is good or bad. It just it just is. It can right. be be either depending on on you know what the the environment is, what the situation is. But I think f- just knowing this, this awareness gives you the freedom, gives you the the ability to then kind of work within that and be a little bit more um, cautious, I guess, about how you're behaving, what what you're kind of putting into your mind, uh, what, what you're feeding yourself, so to speak, um, so that you can make better decisions and just be aware that, hey, I, I'm not always uh, going to operate rationally, and I need to be aware of that and understand why and understand what these forces are from the outside that are kind of that are hitting at me. Um, and I think that alone, that awareness can really help drive a certain type of, of improvement in yourself if that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, the way that I've put it is there's a famous uh, military theorist called John Boyd, and he had this great line, I'm going to have to paraphrase, where he said, you know, great fighter pilots make use their great judgment to make sure that they never have to use their great fighting skill. And I think the idea under that line is that sometimes what's even more valuable than the ability to deal with potentially fraught or perverse situations is the judgment and foresight to ensure that you never get into those situations. And uh, that's also what I think mimetic theory and understanding it can do for someone, it's not going to magically make you uh, be able to be orthogonal or independent from prestige and, and, and the social group, so to speak. Um, but hopefully it's going to help direct you away from environments that ignite sort of uh, uh, unproductive or inflamed versions of the mimesis. But I think if your listeners are interested, there's, mu- there's many there's much more concrete things that, that one can say about what ought one do uh, you know, after one believes in this uh, mimetic hypothesis. Uh, and and probably the biggest takeaway from Gerard is that our relationship with objects, so that, that's including money, objects in the really broad sense, so including jobs as well, really expresses our relationships with other people, right? So uh, if you are in a college a sorority or fraternity and the coolest guy or gal, uh, you know, buys a pair of, I don't know, I don't know what's hot these days, like Louis Vuitton <laughs> or a bag, um, then, 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 you know, maybe you have a tendency to buy that uh, as well. Or, you know, if you're a philosopher and all the great philosophers like Hegel and Adorno in your tradition have wrote, written in a very obscure way, you, you, the object, your writing style, uh, might be mm. uh, sort of uh, naturally tended towards that. Um, uh, and the reverse is also true. If you have disdain for, for, for someone, um, then, then you can try to avoid the key objects that you think are constitutive to their identity. For example, I had a uh, acquaintance in college who was an economic progressive, and initially I, th- I thought, you know, what a great and, and nice guy. He cares a lot about distributive justice and the poor. And then he confessed to me eventually that it was not a love, it was not a, 
uh, universal love for the poor that motivated his progressivism, but it was a particular hatred of the rich. Uh, oh. Because, because <laughs> he was uh, born in a middle-class household, but surrounded by upper-middle-class uh, peers. And so, he, mm. mu- and not having money, he was always made to feel uh, sort of lesser than, than, than they were. And so uh, economic progressivism was his moral weapon, right, to sort of flip the scales back on his richer peers. And uh, so, so you can see in those two examples how our relationships with people can fundamentally change our relationships with objects, right? Right. Um, on the one case, it's, you know, the like for Louis Vuitton bags or the desire to write in an obscure way. On the other, it's a, it's a sort of push away from, uh, from uh, uh, you know, capitalism and towards economic pr- progressivism. Um, and so I think the, the real lesson there is don't work on the objects themselves. Work on your relationships with people. The, the objects, they are a function of that. I did want to touch on th- this, this reverse mimesis idea because I think it's an interesting one to, to kind of think about because, you know, naturally when you're talking about mim- mimicking, you're going to kind of go to this place of uh, who do I admire? Who do I want to be like? Who do I see as having some attributes um, that I would like to have. And so that's who you're going to mimic. But I also like thinking about it in the reverse. Who am I not going to be like? Who do I not want to be like? Right. Um, uh, who's, who's an outcast from my group and what are they doing? I don't want to do that because I don't want to be outcasted from my group. And also this idea that I think people try to hide their mimicking in a lot of ways. They're, you know, I think back to like high school, the uh, politics and stuff, and you've got these groups of people who are trying to be totally different and they're saying, I'm, independent i'm like my i'm my own person i'm going against the grain but inside that group they're all doing the exact same things and i think that happens quite a bit as well yeah so that's another important point in in gerard where i think a lot of people unfortunately overlook which is that mimesis goes both ways um there's a positive strand of mimesis and the logic there is i want to obtain the objects associated with people i think have a surplus in being right and this is uh, you know copying the louis vuitton bag um, but, of course, it's simply a reversal of the same logic to say, I don't want the objects, or I want the objects exactly opposite to the people who I consider with a deficiency in being. And so, to put it simply, we both want to be like the cool kids, and both as distant and far away from the social outcasts in high school uh, as, we, as we possibly can. Um, I, I really liked what you said about this point about innovation, I, and I often wonder this desire to hide our imitation, whether that's uh, culturally contingent or a constant. Um, and I tend to think that it might be a cultural contingency. Mm. When I was doing my first grad, uh, graduate school classes uh, at Columbia in philosophy, the, the, the instructor basically said, at the end of this, I want you to write something that is original. And, I, I, and obviously, this, this uh, originality is a very important mark uh, in the academy today, right? We always want to produce something original. Maybe that's even the primary thing that people are after. And I thought, well, what a weird thing to sort of optimize around in the practice of philosophy. Aren't we after what is true, mm. not what, what was original? And this actually led me to think and, and compare sort of our current environment to uh, uh, the environment of old, whether it's uh, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the Catholic tradition, right, where People always want, want to say that what I'm doing is not original. People always want to say what I'm doing has been, it is said in the Bible. And I, I think the, the best example of this is there's a Tibetan tradition where, uh, it's, I think at least it's called treasures, tre- tre- like treasure finders, where these Buddhist intellectuals claim that their work that they produced isn't really produced by them, but sort of scrolls hidden by a previous uh, a Buddhist uh, a deity or, or, or like more wise philosopher. And of course, if you don't believe in Buddhism and you think it's made up, that's simply a more extreme version of this sort of Christian adherence to uh, sort of the canon that, that we see here, right? Literally saying, not only is this not new and not different from the canon, it's not even from me. It's from some other guy, right? right? So you see how you see my question, right? Like, and why I would think that this might be a cultural contingency. Right. But within that contingency, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, people tend to seek innovation these days as a good in of itself. And the same thing with rebellion, being different. And this calls to mind a movie called The Wild Ones. It was a 1940s movie. Marlon Brando starred in it. 
And, you know, Marlon Brando is this cool gang leader. He's, or I don't know if he's a gang leader, but he's wearing a, a, motor, a motorcycle jacket, a really cool one at a bar. And a cute girl goes up to him and he says, what are you rebelling against? And Brando <laughs> replies, what do you got? Right? He's, not, he, he's not really standing against anything. Whatever right. you put in front of him, he's going to say, I'm, I'm rebelling against that. And so in some sense, mm. his rebellion is no less conformist and no less determined by the group than rigid conformity is because he's simply taking the negative of the group. Um, and, and this, I think, also leads to another one of our discussion points that you, you and I discussed before this that we said we wanted to touch is Gerard's philosophy of innovation. What, one of my favorite lines in Gerard is he says, innovation is nothing but a minimal respect for the past and a mastery of its achievements. And I think what Gerard is warning here is against two strands of thought that are not conducive to innovation. One strand of thought is perhaps the Confucian or the, the classical uh, Christian one, which is to think that is to have an excess of respect for the past, right? And, and that leads you to sort of rigid conformity. But the other, and I think this is much more interesting, is that he's suggesting we also need a minimal respect for the past, right? He didn't say we, we need no respect for the past and a mastery of achievements. He said we do need a minimal respect. And the, the, the idea here is that we really need to understand and master the past, have at least enough respect to master the past before we can truly build on top of it. Because innovation in a, in a healthy or healthy forms of innovation really aren't that dis, disjoint from, uh, from imitation, from reconstruction, from truly mastering and grasping an idea. And I think history is littered with example where repeti repetition, replication, imitation are necessary preconditions, right? Think about Goethe uh, sort of reproducing the great poetic forms before pioneering his own. Think about how uh, first, I, I think it was Germany was considered by France to be a copycat and then super superseded him. But many people don't recognize these days because America has been the spirit of innovation for so long that Americans... Uh, I think in the 19th and, and maybe even the 20th century were considered but mere imitators of Europe and that they couldn't right. be uh, leaders in their own right. And of course, imitation is often continuous with, with, with imitation. Uh, uh, with, with innovation and imitation are often continuous because you, you need to properly imitate and, and be uh, and get caught up, so to speak. Uh, and, and, and funnily enough, uh, maybe to bring this full circle, uh, the, the people in the academy who claim they're, they're so original and there's an epistemic rupture every time they write something, I, I find most of their work to be quite derivative. Uh, right. And, and to your point, right, it's, it's just that people all think they're different but huddle around a corner being different in the same way. Whereas, uh, of course, a lot of these Buddhist thinkers and these, these Christian thinkers who claim that they're not doing anything at all created complete revolutions in thought, right? Uh, and uh, the last point I'll make is that, uh, you know, many people don't realize this, but innovation is, uh, was a negative word, uh, I, I believe, up until the 18th century. It, it was synonymous, in fact, with heresy, right? So I, I, think, I think there's something very interesting going on there that ties perfectly into what you said about negative, negative mimesis. Yeah, and as you were saying that, I was thinking back to your, your uh, writing example, and you touched on it again. It's like, how can you expect to be original if you have not... You, you, you don't right. have any you framework from which there, to pull. Right, like, right, right, right exactly. There is no such thing as, as originality, at, at least in the sense of there has to be a foundation. Right. I mean, unless you come out of the womb and, and, and write some, some profound statement, that would be the only original uh, thing right. I can think of. Right, and, and two comments here. The first one is uh, Gerard used a metaphor for, for people today. And, and I think you see this in everywhere, right? This like this what I humorously or I hopefully hope humorously call rallying under the banner of originality or right, right. Or like conforming to contrarianism. Yes. Um, and you see this within the arts, right? How everyone thinks that they're rebelling against this historical tradition, but really they're just making the same kind of abstract thing that you can't make sense of. It's happening in politics, right? Everyone thinks that they're rebelling against oppression, but they're really just conform They are the, the sort of strongest force. It's almost the, the sort of the activists today are almost like the Christians in the third century where they still have the conception of being persecuted and they didn't realize that Constantine already happened and they're the <laughs> ones in power. And you see this in, in, in philosophy uh, and you see this in company building as well. People who are making incredibly derivative, and it's fine to be derivative startups. They're, they're, they're claiming that they're going to save the world or these, these radical innovations. That's almost a dead giveaway of, of, of amateurity. And the one thing I'll, I'll point here, because it's relevant to my readings now, I'm going through uh, Wittgenstein's uh, biography, Duty of Genius. It's, it's excellent. Um, and he, he, in his diary, he basically said, you know, all that I'm doing here is synthesis. 
I'm just pulling in, you know, Frigga's pictorial theory of meaning, and 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 I really think that, at least in my, in my still brief exploration with philosophy, that, that at the, that's at the, at the bottom, that's all you're going to find. You're, you're going to find synthesis, and and when you look deep into seemingly an original thinker, you're going to find uh, them really standing on the shoulders of giants, Gerard included, mm. drawing upon Nietzsche, drawing upon uh, the recognition theorists like uh, Hegel and Rousseau very heavily, uh, and obviously the Catholic thinkers like. Uh, Augustine. In fact, Gerard himself says, you know, I think three quarters or two thirds of what, what, what he what he says has already been said in Augustine. That's that's so fascinating, and I've I struggle with this myself. Like I've really the last couple of years tried to start writing a lot more, and I can't tell you how many times I've just sat there and thought to myself, like I have nothing original to say, like nothing at all. I'm not I'm not smart enough to be doing this. I don't have any any new thoughts. And then sometimes I, I have to like counter myself and kind of get into an argument and say, who the hell does like, you know, most right. of the people I'm reading, they're not writing th- these, these new ideas. They're like you said, they're synthesizing. They're maybe combining different ideas, reworking. Right. Um, and, and that's really, um, you know, how, how things change. It's much more, more slower cumulative effort than it is just some totally. off the cuff thing. Totally. And, and if you, even if you, um, if I may pat myself on the back a, a bit too much, probably, uh, if you look in, even at these lecture series of interpreting Gerard, I think, you know, I was trained in this uh, tradition in philosophy, uh, the historical tradition of philosophy, where, where what you do mostly is just interpreting uh, sort of the, the other great authors. And people don't really realize how much originality there is into a proper uh, interpretation, right? If you read Gerard and then you listen to the lecture series, if you read Hegel and then you know, read Koyev's lecture notes on Hegel, I think you're going to find there's a lot more sort of originality and contribution uh, b- b- by the interpreter than, than, than the mere name interpreter suggests. That's a valid, valid point. Let's swing this back around a little bit. And uh, we talked about kind of these ideas on, on mimesis and mimetic theory and how they might impact the individual um, as far as from a finance perspective. But I'd also like to look at, at, at markets uh, more broadly. And the first thing that came to mind for me was, you know, asset bubbles. And I don't care if you're talking about tulip mania during the Dutch golden years in the 1630s, the tech bubble of the, of the early 2000s, the more recent meme stock explosion. It doesn't really matter. When I think about those things, I think of a massive, massive, just an abundance of mimetic energy uh, that, that, that's exploding. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think this goes back to uh, Mark of any good conversation is that you can always trace things back to what you've already said, and I think this goes back to what we said about how mimesis grounds normativity, that that it fundamentally determines where we think value lies, right? And I think all of these are examples of that. That the tulip bulb in the height of the tulip mania took upon a disproportionate, almost metaphysical or sacred value, um, and I think because of that craze, and I think this is true for for, for crypto uh, as well. Um, maybe, so that's obviously the first thing that one can say. I mean, the second thing one can say is that, you know, it's very lucrative um, to not be governed by those by those uh, bubbles and, and be swept up by that. Mm-hmm. And it's very lucrative to be able to, you know, identify, uh, you know, you know lo- lo- low cost, but options that no one is looking at when everyone else is looking at something else. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe... The third thing that I'll say is, this applies to society at large, but um, specifically to markets, there's an interesting uh, isomorphism here, which is that Gerard thinks modernity, one of the many uh, directions of history, is marked by our increasing proximity with each other. And maybe one easy way to understand this is how social media has enabled the poorest of of, of people in the world to, to, to intimately be acquainted with what the richest people in the world think and do and a day in the life and all that stuff. Whereas a peasant in France and maybe in the 17th century might, might not even travel outside his or her own sort of mm-hmm. village boundaries. And the modern intuition is to think about this increased accessibility as, um, if not a solely good thing, a largely good thing. And while Gerard definitely is sympathetic to accessibility for all, he thinks it's incredibly dangerous. Because it means that desires can spread much more rapidly. Right. And I think um, the analogy here that, that you can see, perhaps, is uh, I believe when the Palm Pilot was introduced and became very popular and people were able to trade stocks there from their phone, 
the volatility in stock markets, I, I think, like, increase, increase like, lockstep. I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact sort of metric. I believe and, it. And, and, right. And, and you see the same thing with Robinhood, and you see this, obviously, with, with the meme stocks, uh, right, right, the, the Reddit stuff uh, last year. Uh, and so maybe another way to think about your job, James, is that you're a guard against, uh, you're, you're, you're a guard against uh, mimetic contagion. Right, because mm. your your role there at advisor is to be a voice of reason, is to be not not as swept up. And if individuals really controlled their own portfolio, uh, and who, who people who aren't as knowledgeable about finance specifically, uh, or, or about Gerard's ideas more generally, might be much more easily uh, swept up in these things. You think that should be my uh, Twitter bio? Guard against mimetic contagion. <laughs> Guard against mimetic, maybe only maybe in the asset markets for now. Maybe in the asset <laughs> markets for now, and then 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 perhaps more ambitiously in the world at large. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's going to take some time, I think. But right. but yeah, I think I think that's all really interesting. And I was really, um, I, I think that that the piece about kind of the the number of people to have access to mimic was really compelling. Um, and I've heard you speak on this uh, several different times and I actually wrote about, about it a little bit. I was so interested in it. Fantastic. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a really fascinating t- thing to think about. You don't have to go back all that long. I mean, yeah, if you, if you go back 16th, 17th century, that, that, that's, that's one thing. I think if you go back to, you know, the 1950s, uh, just, you know, one generation ahead of me, you know, you were mostly interacting with people from your town who had a similar background to you. Um, who had similar opportunities uh, that that you would likely have, and suddenly fast forward one one and a half generation maybe, and you can see exactly what what people are doing halfway across the world from a variety of different backgrounds with incredibly different current situations. Right, and it and it it can create some some good things. It can create new ambitions or new things to strive for and a cross pollination of ideas. But it can just as well as as you alluded to. Uh, create some problems where where all of a sudden uh, desires just run amok <laughs> in the world. So uh, interesting uh, to think uh, about. I think that's right, and I think that's as you, uh, if you listen to the rest of the lecture series, I guess that's a common thread you're going to see across Gerard's ideas is his deep ambivalence mm-hmm. that often the things that are going to bring the most amount of good also have the potential to bring the, the most amount of evil as well. Uh, and, and this increased accessibility or equality, uh, uh, proximity between man, um, that marks one of the arcs, at least, of history mm-hmm. is one such ambivalent force. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing that I liked about, um, a lot of Gerard's work. And there's a certain element of balance to it, right? He's not, and now maybe, maybe eventually he does get a little bit more, um, I, I, I guess, um, what, what apocalyptic, would the word be? Pessimistic. Yeah, I was I was gonna say apocalyptic, but I I think in 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 the pieces I've read to, to date, it it feels like there's this certain balance where it's and it's kind of how I try to look at my life as a whole. It's like most things aren't inherently good or bad. It's kind of what what you make of it, how you use them, um, things like that. And I think there's a lot of those elements um, kind of tied into mimetic theory. It's not that it's good or bad. It's not that some of these things are good or bad. It's, yeah. it's more the result of them and, and kind of what the way they're used. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I enjoy that as well. I, I wonder, however, if that is a mark of most good, that, that, that is less a difference between Gerard and other philosophies than it is of a popular telling of philosophies than the philo- what the philosophers say themselves. Cause I imagine you have engaged much more intimately and deeply with Gerard than maybe other philosophers. But even someone like Marx, uh, you know, he praises capital uh, in, right. in, in many ways. One that be, being that it liberates man from the feudal lord. Uh, the other is that he thinks, uh, according to some readings, that it's going to be so innovative that it's going to bring about the material conditions necessary for social utopia through a, a socialism, a communist utopia, through, uh, through innovations. Mm. Right? So, so, so right. I think that's a feature of many many different uh, philosophers, if you read them closely. Um, I, I want to make one last point. I, I, I made a promise in the beginning of this lecture to talk about the psychology of Gerard and how that relates to money. And now, if it's okay, I think our Please. last discussion should be about Gerard's anthropology and, and social theory. Absolutely. And how it came to be and why that's important. I think this will uh, really show that. So Gerard traces a genealogy of how our modern economy uh, comes to be. 
And, you know, if you ask people, you know, how did the economy come to be? I imagine they'll give a Smithian answer, right? That first there was barter and then money was invented and then debt was invented. And through debt and other financial instruments, we came to exist. Or our current economy came to exist. There's a great book. I don't know if you have read it. I strongly recommend it if you haven't, uh, by a gentleman by the name of David Graeber called Debt. And one of his core theses is to flip this on its head. That initially, we actually started off in a debt-based society, and then we invented money. And it's only when we got used to making money and money wasn't there, it's like prison of war, prisoner of war camps, did we go back into bartering. So it's a complete mm-hmm. flipping. Right. And Gerard, I think, would agree, agree with the Graeberian view here, where he thinks that the genesis of money is in gift-giving. So I think a dominant, I don't want to say consensus, but you know, with these academics, academics there's really consensus in anything. <laughs> yeah, careful um, but, there. <laughs> right, but a, a, a popular theory amongst uh, many uh, anthropologists is that many uh, pre-money uh, human societies uh, acted in, in this sort of uh, gift-giving way. So the dominant mode of economic exchange wasn't, you know, how many chickens are you going to take for my cow? It was, holy shit, my neighbor is dying. Let me cook him some chicken soup or something. And there's a amorphous ledger, right, of, you know, this person helped me. I must help them. Um, and, and it's quite obvious when you put it in that way why primitive societies weren't operated on uh, just direct exchange. is because it's very alienating, right? James, right. like, uh, you know, if I go to you and I say, hey, can you help me uh, w- with this podcast or with an asset investment advice? And you say, yep, that'll be twenty three ninety five, uh, and, and you know, you and I, we, we, we know each other. Then that could be really alienating because what does it tell you? It, t- it tells me that you think, or one of the implications is that our relationship is going to end, right? And you see this right. with how fast you settle dinner bills with your friends. With those, if you're backpacking in Southeast Asia and you're not going to see them anymore, you got to settle immediately, right? <laughs> and then, however, with your you know further away friends. Uh, you're, you're not gonna, maybe perhaps you're not gonna settle at all. Right? So this was the dominant mode, or so many think, of, uh, of economic activity, which is gift giving. That there is a rough social ledger of who owes who what, hence debt. Right? And there's two important qualities to emphasize here that'll be very important to us understanding capitalism. One, what began with a purely material transactional activity, right? So think about uh, me, uh, you know, give, giving you a chicken because you're starving. Ended up taking a primarily social and prestigious significance to the extent that there are many recordings of great chieftains and, and, and across all cultures who would throw lavish feasts into and to the to the extent of a gift-giving war. In fact, there was a story I, I couldn't pull up where, where someone got a gift so good that he couldn't uh, that he couldn't re- repeat it, that he ha- that, that he killed the, the gift giver, <laughs> which, which is kind of a ludicrous sort of notion in in, in our world, right? You know, I, I gift you a Mercedes Benz, and you you can only give me a Honda, and then you kill me. You bastard! But, 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 right, exactly. But but do you but do you can you get the intuition of why that would be? Because in such a society where the dominant mode of economic transaction is gift giving. The ability to give you a Mercedes, that puts me on top of you. Right. Right. So did you see there's there's a not there's a there's a logic of spirit on top of purely reason and appetite that's starting to form here? Absolutely. And I, and I think you can see this in modern day philanthropy. I mean, let's not kid ourselves, right? A, a lot of the reason that people give in philanthropy is to have their name on the building. Or, or, yeah, or, or, otherwise or it would all be anonymous. Exactly, exactly. And so Obviously, that's not to say there's no sort of purely philanthropic giving, but I think sure. we both agree that a great deal of it, right? Um, so that's the first point. The second point, as this example of uh, you know killing the <laughs> the guy who gave you a gift that so good you couldn't uh, respond, uh, goes to show. Uh, Gerard observes that in healthy pre-money societies, you always need uh, uh, what what he called a temporal gap between gift and counter gift. Again, this is for two reasons. One is that if you give me a chicken right now and I immediately pick up and give you three shoes, that implies a sort of distance between our relationship, that we're going to end, we're going to be atomized, that I'm not going to see you again. And for most of these pre-money cultures, right, you do see everyone for the rest of your life because they're, they're in your village. Right, right. Now, there's a second reason, which is 
this rapid exchange, this rapid uh, interplay uh, 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 exchange, Gerard thinks tends to escalate if there's not a sufficient gap in between. I give you something, you give me something better than return. Well, I have to, I have to, you know, immediately give you something, right? If I don't want to be seen as the as the lesser man, and that there's so many, uh, uh, you know, energies of of rivalry that could be combined in these gestures that it could lead to violence. And so most of these pre-money societies, Gerard observes, had, uh, if not strict prohibitions, at least guide or like, you know, cultural guidance or expectations of, of a long interplay. That's interesting too, Jonathan, because it, it almost prevents like, pr- you know, value setting be- because if, if you give me a chicken and I turn around and give you, you know, three shoes, three right. shoes. Yeah. Now one chicken equals three shoes. And next time I need a chicken. You know, you're expecting right. three shoes. So right, right. I think if there is time in between, it kind of prevents uh, kind of this price setting on on or, everything. Right, or at least formally, right? Like, right, I right. give you two, three chickens, and in three months, I give you three shoes. There's no formal connection right. between the two, right? Socially, I'm not – there's not – right, it's not tit for tat. I think that's exactly right. And uh, the way that, that Gerard thinks that we've transitioned from this society to – uh, uh, modern capitalism, the modern economy, is the invention of money. And what money does is that it serves precisely the function of atomizing us and cutting off the transaction at the time. Remember, we couldn't do these reciprocal transactions partially because value was ambiguous, right? right. Uh, but w- with money, with a common sort of currency, we can sort of close the transaction in it, it, there and not, not this being a hanging ledger, right? A series of debts among people. But the, the, as a result, however, um, we, we've become atomized. Does that make sense? So, so money a tool is a tool for Gerard that in some sense protects us against violence because it allows relationships to be cut off. But the way that it protects us against violence is by cutting off relations. Right, right. By, by, by sort of preventing these debts from being formed. You know, if I go downstairs, I'm in New York right now, and I go to a halal cart. If I pay him five dollars, he's not going to be thinking. About, I get a euro. He's not going to be thinking about me anymore, right? But 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 if I'm saying, hey, five dollars, you know, can I get a euro? I'll, I'll give you something in return in the future. There's always going to be that ledger, and that relationship starts forming. So again, money here is quite an ambivalent thing. On one hand, it, it prevents violence in some sense because it permits rapid exchange and increases economic activity. But on the other hand, uh, it, it does so by sort of atomizing us and cutting yeah. us off. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it turns neighbors into customers, I think, is kind of exactly. the, what I have going through my head. And, and you know, I, it, you kind of think about agriculture in this way. Um, it, it's like you said before, like maybe I'm growing something that, that is not harvestable for months. Normally, I would just get something from you and my harvest is ready. Then you would get whatever in return, maybe three months later. Now, all of a sudden, that transaction is instant. We don't have right. to see each other again um, yeah. until, until next year. And, and, and that's why, uh, and maybe I think this relates to, to wealth management, especially with more, more affluent uh, clients who have to deal with that relationship with their children. I think just as is, it's important not to project the familial logic into the state. It's also important not to inject, oh, sorry, the familial logic into the economy, right? To each according to their, uh, to their need, from each according to their to ability. I think that could be a way of perversion, but there could be an also another way of perversion, right? Which is to inject the logic of the economy and money into the family because the family should be uh, one where you do form lasting relationships. And I think it would be quite odd for someone who, who would want to settle all their debts with their children. Right. Some people do do this and, and maybe it can be done in a healthy way. But, but uh, yeah, like, do, do you see what I'm trying to get at here? And so I do. Yeah. M- maybe one thing that I'll, that I'll end here with is money then, because it has the ability to sort of end these relationships and contain value, it, it almost takes upon a disproportionate sacred value of its own because it is a symbol fundamentally of this sort of social ledger and debt. Right. And I think the perhaps the practical insight here is, you know, I, I tend to think that there's two types of people. One, one type of person is that they don't value money sufficiently enough, um, and, and they really should be thinking about it more. But I think for you know people who are more fo- more, more focused on money, um, perhaps some of your clients, 
I, th- I think they, they tend to value money too much, right? That they've bought in too much into this, this, this story, uh, and sort of, uh, uncritically, uh, you know, uh, uh, fallen into its claws, if you if I could can be yeah. a bit dramatic. No, I, I would agree with you. And I mean, obviously, I'm talking about money every single day and thinking about money and looking at markets. And I, I have to be cautious myself, I think, not to become overly infatuated with, with this idea of more and more money. Um, and I, and you know, that's part of the way I've started to transition my practice a little bit is, and, and again, it's not a dig at, at like accumulating or, or whatever, but one of the questions I'm, I'm starting to ask my clients and, and I, I first ask myself is, is, is this pursuit of money aligned with my values? Or, or in other words, am I spending money and using money in ways that uh, are aligned with what I say I care about? And, and I think as long as people are thinking a little bit more about that instead of just accumulating money uh, to become the guy who can give the gifts uh, of the lavish party and, of course, right. hopefully not get killed <laughs> over it. But I, I think that provides a little bit different uh, insight into what money actually is. So – um, it, it, these are all interesting things to think about, uh, think about money beyond just, you know, paper fiat dollars that, that we can spend. I agree. And, and thank you so much for having me here uh, for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And if you don't mind, can I ask you two closing questions here before we, all right. The first one, if you could send a mass text message and reach everybody in the world who has a cell phone, they would get dinged and have to read that message. What message would you send? Yeah. So Jim asked me, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy asked me a somewhat similar question at the end. And, and my response was, uh, I, I really don't know. I, I'm, I'm still figuring what is good for the world and, 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 uh, you know, figuring that out right now. So I would just go something really practical. I would, I would pump a shit coin and then I would buy <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, that's literally what I would do. Yeah. Because I, 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 I really, it, it, you know, if I thought, you know, uh, certain political uh, ideologies or economic arrangements were, were ideal, then I would try to push that. But right now, I'm still trying to figure that out. So I can only promote my self-interest, I guess. Uh, no, I, that, that's interesting because I, I can definitely appreciate the humility of not thinking you know what's best for every single person in the world. Um, so right. I, I think there's something uh, to that. And then the second one is, what, what, do, what does wealth personally mean to you? How would you define wealth? Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting question. I guess for me, um, the the way I looked at it is is probably in two tiers, um, and it's both attractive, but to different degrees. One tier is just you know having enough um, to to live and to be able to do exactly what you want, um, and and maybe to do so for your for your children as well. And and that is something that I'm actively working every day to secure. Beyond that. I think wealth tends to, uh, or rather people who pursue wealth tend to have this sort of chieftain problem where, where it's, it's really a status game that they're going after at the point. But that's, that's not to say I don't want to pursue wealth beyond this number, quote unquote, right? This like self-sufficient number. But I think the sort of utility there um, is that it can help you actualize certain projects in the world. Um, and, and I was, you know, very fortunate to to, to have been uh, granted uh, grants uh, to make the Gerard lectures, and uh, you know that's from generous patrons, and that I wouldn't have been able to do w- without their help. And so, it, it's really beyond sort of my self sufficiency. What really attracts me about wealth is being able to, uh, uh, or rather, the, the, the sort of status number does attract me about wealth. But I, I know it's, it's probably not a good thing and not something I should double down on. But there, there is a general utility of wealth that I think is still worth pursuing, and that's the ability to actualize things sure. in the world. Well, Jonathan, this has been really fascinating. I've learned a ton from from you and from David on on Gerard, and uh, I will definitely continue to dive into his works. It's been really fascinating, and I think you've got such a way of of um, kind of explaining, explaining things and, and very interesting. I mean, sitting, you know, most people these days can't sit through an hour and 45, two hour lecture without getting bored. But, um, right. I, I managed to not only do that myself and really become interested in the ideas, but I even drug my wife into it and, uh, yeah. she really enjoyed it. And we had some, some spirited discussion, uh, afterwards. So, so thank you all for, for what you're doing, uh, on that front and where can people find the lectures and where can they find out more about you and what you're up to? 
Yeah, so if you go on jonathanb.com, I'll post most of my, my writing essays and any more video lectures on there. Jo- Jonathan is, is spelled with an extra H, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N. Uh, and yeah, you'll find the link to the lectures there as well. And hopefully when we release these, uh, uh, this podcast, we'll, we'll be releasing the rest of the, the entire series as well. Absolutely. I, I know I'm just ready to, ready to dive into them. I'll probably binge them. Um, as soon as those are available. So again, thanks, Jonathan. Um, I appreciate your time and uh, appreciate the incredible conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Gerard was quite the provocative thinker. If you enjoy Jonathan's insights into Gerard, check out the lecture series. The production quality is top notch. And at some point throughout, you're sure to be amazed, confused, in agreement with, in disagreement with, and a whole host of other states. It's a fascinating series. Please subscribe to or follow us at Philosophy so you are notified of new drops. We've got some interesting guests coming up for the curious. Thanks for listening. <laughs>